Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and it's a pleasure to have with me today, Kelly Jackson Higgins. Hi, Kelly. Hi, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Kelly is the executive editor of Dark Reading. She's an award-winning veteran technology and business journalist with more than two decades of experience in reporting and editing for various publications, including Network Computing, Secure Enterprise Magazine, Virginia Business Magazine, and other major media properties. Kelly has recently been selected as one of the top 10 cybersecurity journalists in the U.S., and named as one of Folio's 2019 Top Women in Media. So Kelly, let's get started. How did you get started with journalism? That's a really good question. Um, I had kind of a a, a circuitous path, I would say. Um, As a kid, I always wanted to be a writer. I might have been the fact that I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, post-Watergate, Bernstein and Woodward uh, were, were out there, and the movie was out, and everyone was excited about investigative journalism. And I, as a little kid, I used to create a fake newspaper for my family every Sunday that sort of mimicked the newspaper. Um, So I always wanted to write. I enjoyed writing. And originally, I thought I was going to be a sports writer. That was my first dream. Um, So all through high school and college, campus newspaper, and then out of college, I was a a sports writer, basically a a stringer for a local sports uh, newspaper in the Northern Virginia area. And uh, so that's kind of how I got started. And then I, in terms of how I got into technology was sort of accidentally. (laughs) Um, I was (laughs) like most people, like most people. Yep. I was told um, if I wanted to be a sports writer for a major newspaper, I needed to go move somewhere and get a job. And at that point I had no money, a bunch of student loans, no car. uh, And I realized I would never get out of my parents' house if I didn't get a job. So I started looking around and found a gig with a newsletter that covered IT. Um, and that's they were looking for journalists who could cover technology, basically. So I got immersed in it early on. And then just sort of the path went towards security as the security industry started evolving in the 90s. Um, that was always the area that I was most interested in was security. I thought it was the most interesting piece of the technology puzzle. That's so exciting. And do you happen to have any of your childhood newspapers that you published for your family still with you? Uh, my parents still have them at their house. Um, I would, I can like, still remember exactly what they looked like because I was no artist and I would draw like the <laughs> grid of the newspaper and it would take me a while because I was not an artist. Uh, so, but, but I remember doing it exactly and what it looked like on a piece of notebook paper. <laughs> so it was very high tech. That, that must have been so exciting for you. And it's so nice to know that you had a family that was supportive at such a young age of, you know, your aspirations to become a writer, right? So that's, that's great to see. Any insight you can give us on what makes a good journalist? Yeah, you know, I I think a lot about that because journalism has evolved so much. Um, But what I always think doesn't change is sort of the things you need to be good at as a journalist. Um, Persistence, curiosity, enthusiasm, and interest about the topic that you're writing about or researching. Um, You know, being trustworthy and honest with your sources, with what you write. Um, Of course, accuracy is huge. 
that people always catch when you make a mistake and you want to be trusted and you want to be considered a, a trustworthy writer. Um, I think strong writing skills are still really important. It, you may have a great story, but if you're not telling it well or in an interesting way or in a coherent way, no one's going to read it. So I still feel like that's really important. Um, and also just kind of being open-minded. Um, I majored in English in college, so I did a lot of literary analysis. And I always feel like what makes me a strong journalist is my ability to kind of analyze the news and not just look at it at face value, but kind of explore what this means, what the themes are, what the trends are, um, sort of the underlying forces that are shaping the news or the news could shape. Um, and then I like to, I think it's important to be able to explore all sides of an issue, not just take it very face value. Uh, and of course, in the security industry, which is a very social industry in general, I think having really good interpersonal skills, you know, to get to know your sources, um, you know, provide them comfort and an element of trust that, you know, is very important to getting good information and providing good information to your readers. I think those are really the main things I think about a lot because a lot of people are calling themselves journalists now that probably aren't what we thought of as a traditional journalist years ago. I think you highlighted a key point there, which is just the passion and genuine interest in, in what you're doing is key to being good at what you do. You know, I have great respect for people who write well, because I have uh, been trying to, you know, write more and build more content from a blogging and marketing perspective. And I really struggle um, because I'm not a good writer from my, you know, I'll self-admit that I'm not a good writer. <laughs> and then I also find that if it's a topic that I'm writing about that I'm genuinely interested in, it really does show in the, in the output that you, that you get from that effort. Um, I tend to write them quicker and they tend to be much more polished and, and better from a content perspective versus if I'm writing about something that doesn't really interest me as much personally. So, you know, having that enthusiasm and love for what you're doing, I think, is key. I think you can really tell that with stories like as an editor as well, and both a journalist and editor. So you can tell when a writer really enjoyed the topic and mm -hmm. really drilled down, really got in really deep into the topic and got interested. I think that means a lot. And, and just finding your voice. I mean, different writers have their own writing voice. I think initially when you start out, you don't, you try to follow, you know, somebody you admired or some style you think that's the right style. But once you find your voice, it's like a whole different level that you kind of get into in your writing. And that's the part that's really fun to me is when you have an idea, you have a story, and then you can express it in your voice that really comes across that you really cared about it and you put a lot into it. Would you also agree that practice plays a big part in that too? Over time, the more you write, the better you get and quicker you get at it? Absolutely. Um, you know, just even for me now, I'm writing a little bit less because I'm, I'm uh, running our news site. So sometimes I'll find myself taking longer to get started on writing because I don't do it every day like I did mm -hmm. a year ago. So that's kind of a weird feeling for me. Like it doesn't come quickly sometimes, but it is. The more you do it, the more you immerse yourself in it, the more natural it becomes. And your voice is just there when you start, when you start typing. So you've had a lot of success uh, reporting, especially in the field of cybersecurity. Is there any advice you would give someone who wants to get into cybersecurity journalism specifically? Yeah, it's interesting because I get asked the question a lot by young people, you know, unofficially, how do you get into cybersecurity in general? And that's, it's still a really hard question to answer, even from the career side of things. Um, but the journalism side is even different because there really isn't like this path you go to journalism school and, and specialize in cybersecurity. I mean, maybe people can do that now, but there's really not a quick and easy way to get in. But I would say just really, you know, getting a lot of experience in journalism, first and foremost, um, you know, digging into the technology side of things. I think some cybersecurity journalists are maybe a little afraid of the technology, but 
one of the ways I learned to be a technology journalist years ago was just digging into the technology side, not being shy about it, asking all the what I thought were dumb questions. But most technical people, they don't consider those dumb questions. It's something they care about, especially in security. There's so much enthusiasm when a lot of the practitioners and the the researchers, they're, they're excited about what they're doing. They want you to ask those questions and they might not know that you want to dig that deep. Don't be afraid to dig deeper and really understand you know, how things work. I think one of the things that's kind of helped me with my security coverage is I initially covered the internet itself, like the sort of infrastructure of the internet. So I learned about TCP IP and all the underlying protocols and and that really kind of gives me a perspective on how things work. You know, I'm not a programmer, I'm not a network engineer, but I had to explain how the internet worked to people it's, <laughs> from time to time and <laughs> and what what it is. And so I think that really makes a difference in the kind of reporting you can do. I think it's important, you know, to to talk to the experts, the pioneers in the industry too who can give you perspective because so much of this industry has grown so quickly as you know that people forget there's actually a history too. <laughs> So it's good to kind of step back and look at it through that lens. I think talking to people who were around in the early days of security, who kind of pioneered it with some of them without high school, dropped out of high school, some without college degrees, um, just dove right in. A lot of it was creativity and curiosity of breaking things and, you know, figuring out what was safe and what you could do and what you couldn't do to, you know, to software or to a network. So I think just really knowing you don't have to be, like I said, you don't have to be a network engineer would be probably really helpful if you were. Um, but you, if you really do, you know, not be shy to, to ask those questions and really try to learn about the technology as well. And then again, like I mentioned before, security is such a social, um, communicative type of technology field more than pure IT field is. So, you know, get to know the people in the industry. Obviously Twitter is where they're all hanging out. (laughs) So if you don't know people start, you know, tuning in there and, and listening to conversation and then talk to people. Don't just publish their tweets verbatim, but actually talk to them and understand, you know, what the key issues are, what's going on. And most people are pretty, pretty available and, you know, willing to talk to you. It's not like they're not wanting to share their knowledge. They are. And I think it's important to, you know, take advantage of that interest on both sides and show your interest and really just dig in. You touch on a very common theme that we, we seem to, to get on our episodes which is kind of going back to the fact that it's important to understand the basics and the foundations of the thing that you're trying to excel in or, you know, in, in your case, report on. So the fact that you had the good foundational understanding of how the internet worked and, and IT in general really helped you in your efforts to, to report on cybersecurity specifically. Yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful that I went through all that. I remember like just digging into the whole stack of protocols and understanding, you know, the standards and all that. And it, I think, you know, I thought at the time it was painful in some ways, but it was always interesting to me. But now I, I really am thankful because it's helped me a lot to put things in perspective when you see a threat, what's happening and how the attackers are abusing things. I can understand it better than I would otherwise. Well, for someone like myself who has computer science background and I had to actually implement the TCP IP stack <laughs> from scratch, I can assure you it's horrible. It's not I something I painful. <laughs> it's not something that I want to do again. No. But it's it's really impressive and magical that that's really the backbone of the internet today. Yeah, absolutely. So, are there any particular stories or topics that you really enjoy covering? Oh, that's a good question. The kind of stories I like to do the most, I have the least time to do now, unfortunately, but um, we've done over the years uh, here and there sort of personality profiles of people in the industry that talk about not just, you know, get behind who they, behind their, you know, what they're known for in the industry, but who they are and some interesting 
you know, anecdotes about them. And, and uh, I did a, done a ton of those over the years, and I really miss doing those. I'm eager to do some more this year. Those are a lot of fun. It's also a good way to get to know people better, too. In the industry, you just maybe know them as okay. that guy who hacked the Mac, but then you get to know more about you know what, what makes them tick and some of their personal interests, which is actually kind of fun. I think readers really appreciate that, too. That's something we want to do more of. I like to do stories uh, in terms of like news type stories. I like to do pieces that really drill down into like the analysis of what's going on and what trend is is being driven. Um, probably a story that if I had to look at my favorite story and it's, it seems so dated right now because I'm most embarrassed to talk about it. But at the time, it was like kind of a new thing, a new, a new thought, and it was only eight years ago. <laughs> but um I did a piece on looking at uh, security, kind of assuming the worst that you were hacked. And this was the time, believe it or not, in 2012, we were still saying, we're going to stop the attackers at the door. You know, you've got AV, you've got okay. network security stuff. We're just going to block them at the door. Don't let them in. It was a combination of just what we had tool-wise available then probably, and also just a little bit of naivete that, that attackers were actually already in your, your network. Um, it really struck me. I was at um, RSA that year, and I was just walking around the show floor, and I, I ran into a, a booth at just a random small startup company. I was meeting with someone there and they were, they were sort of talking about it and they were actually from the, the defense industry, I think originally, which made sense because they had been dealing with, you know, advanced threats for a long time. And sort of the reality of the, there's products out there now saying, okay, the bad guys are in, what are you going to do about it? That was a whole new mindset. So I wrote a series of pieces about security's new reality that, you know, it's not this, it's not no longer if you're going to get hacked, but Assume you are, and what are you going to do about it? How are you going to minimize the damage? And of course, that's a theme we hear all the time now. But at the time, it was kind of not controversial, but just unusual to hear someone say that. It was like, oh, you're being fatalistic. But at the time, the more people I talked to, they were saying, well, that's kind of security's dirty little secret. We've got you know, the bad guys got in; they're there. We got to, you know, we can't just pretend that we can block them anymore. The, the really good ones. So that really opened my eyes, um, you know, about what was really happening, about how the technology needed to also sort of evolve to to address that. So it, it was really fun to write that story because the first one, especially because it was kind of, what is she saying? That's like so depressing. But but then everyone I talked to was on the same page. Well, yeah, it's true. Uh, but nobody was saying it out loud, right? So even the vendors weren't saying it out loud. They started saying it out loud after that. So I thought that was really an interesting thing to research. Now it sounds so, oh, that's so passe. But in 2012, that was a new thing. Um, so I did a, a, a sort of series of articles, you know, looking at, you know, not only they're there, what are you going to do about it? How do you mitigate it? You know, that kind of thing. So that was that was actually fun to do in a weird way. But um, I, I do like the deep dive kind of, you know, really go in and look at things differently kind of stories. It's so true that pace at which things are evolving is is so quick, especially in just in technology as well as in security. I can recall 2012 or 2010 to 2012 when working in cybersecurity space. In particular, my focus was always application security. It always was a challenge talking to people and explaining to them why they needed to do certain types of reviews or why they needed an assessment done and that it was important. And that view definitely has shifted. Now I spend time discussing how they can test to, to get better coverage or what types of techniques do they need to consider or they are not considering today versus the actual need for testing. So within the security industry, you know, I, I typically interface with security professionals, so their view has changed. I'd be curious from your perspective as you report on cybersecurity, how has people's perspective in general changed over the years around cybersecurity? 
Um, do you mean people within the industry or just in general? Like, for- I'm more curious about your audience, your, yeah. your readers uh, that are reading uh, your publications. Yeah, I think, you know, I think they've kind of gotten to that place too now where there's this, you know, we're not going to be able to stop this, this, the bad guys from getting it. What do we do about it? So I think, you know, there is more of a reality check. Um, you know, sometimes I think there's, you know, we, we see so many threats. I think it's overwhelming sometimes. And we try to, that's one of the things we try to balance is, you know, we just bombarding, we don't want to bombard our readers with here's the latest threat, here's the latest threat. But some, you have to step back and, and explain to them what are the trends here with this latest wave of threats we're seeing. Like when ransomware started becoming more mainstream and the corporate side, you know, why is that happening and, you know, what can you do about it? So I think, I, I do believe that the readers are, are definitely more, there's a higher level of understanding now than there was, you know, in 2012 of, of what's happening out there. Um, and a lot of that's because the research is getting better, you know, the technology is evolving too, and the awareness is there too, that this is not just a one-off thing you can block one time and you're good to go. Um, it's an evolving thing. I mean, as you see in your, your work too, security is not ever finished. You know, it's, it's constantly uh, shifting, evolving, you know, adjusting, tweaking, you know, just like with your security tools, you don't just set them and forget them. You got to go back in and, you know, different things happen. You have to go back in and, and retool, reset your settings to address a certain new threat you're seeing or something you saw or automate something that's you're seeing over again that's not a big deal. It's a constant, I think, a constant learning uh, experience, which is what I love about covering it. It's never boring. We literally have every day a million things we can write about, not a million, but a, a ton of things we can write about. And we have to leave some stuff on the floor. We just can't do it all. Um, but we really do try to just sift through it because um, there is some noise too, obviously. Um, but sift through it and you know, kind of pull out the threads and and uh, take those threads and try to advance them into something meaningful for you know for people out there who have to deal with this stuff on a daily basis in their jobs. And I think now the nice thing is it's not just the technical people that understand it; it's the C level folks also. And I think that kind of started back, not to pick on Target, but started back with Target, and then really I think got more painful in the ransomware wave here in the last few years. So I think you know the executives get it now. Um, you know when you talk about what you do for a living. At a cocktail party, not that anyone goes to those right now, but if you did, people do know more what you what you do now. And you know, they say when you say cybersecurity, they know what that means now. That's a, it's a more of a mainstream word, and it's not just for technical people. This executives at companies are getting it too, and and it's part of their their day to day concerns. It's interesting that you bring up Target because that's the exact example I was thinking <laughs> about to ask you a follow up question on. Uh, the question I had was. What's your opinion in terms of people actually wanting to know more about cybersecurity today because the impact that some of these cybersecurity breaches have are hitting closer to home? They're really personal, like the Target case where there was a large number of credit card data that was breached. You know, a lot of people shop at Target and use their credit cards. So when the the credit card data was stolen, it really impacts you because you have to now go and cancel your credit card or wait for your credit card company to tell you whether or not your particular credit card was compromised and take action. So I think as these data breaches happen, it's affecting them personally. So they're asking more questions. What are your thoughts? Is that, is that something that's helping bring more awareness to cybersecurity as well? Absolutely. I think the retail breaches that year um, after Target were a big wake-up call for consumers. The problem was there were so many of them you know, all in a row, that people kind of got numb to it a little bit too. So there was this whole, well, I'll just get another credit card, or I'll just get another debit card. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, I kept thinking, this is not a sustainable model. You know, we can keep reassigning, you know, people cards when there's this <laughs> data breach happening. Um, but I think, in my mind, ransomware has been more of a wake-up call because, first of all, if you're trying to reach a service uh, and something life-threatening like a hospital, um, or if it's a business that you you know you need on a daily basis and they're hit with a ransomware attack that knocks them down, or if you're a city like we saw, you know, Baltimore and the state of Texas go through, I think that probably has been the most I think eye opener for the the general public uh, because those are things your day to day life is more affected by. I think people got a little bit jaded about I'll just get a new credit card, big deal, you know, when that was happening because we had so many of them, mm -hmm. you know. At the same time, um, and most people now, I think even general public people assume they've had some sort of a breach or, you know, whether it's a credit card or their passwords, everyone kind of knows that now, most people do. But um, but I think, you know, ransomware was probably to me, you know, while it was happening in, in Moss, we saw so much of it, you know, the very high profile targets that we've been seeing. I think that probably was a bigger turning point for awareness um, because you could see how much damage it could do um, and the fallout that could be in some cases life-threatening. That's true. and. Going back to the assumed breach concept that you had mentioned earlier, it's very common for me to get this question from people when they find out that I'm in cybersecurity. The first question they ask is, or first statement that they, they claim to be true is, so you don't do any online shopping, do you? Because they expect <laughs> me to not use my credit card online. And then I have, I have to explain to them, no, actually, majority of my shopping's done online anyways. And then they asked me, well, how do you make sure that you're doing it securely? And even though there are very common techniques, what I tell them is I go on the internet under the assumption that I've already been breached and I'm relying on the other controls when it comes to credit cards, which is reviewing my statement properly every month, uh, making sure that the company from where I have the credit card issued has a good fraud detection capability to detect fraud as well. And then a lot of the stuff is insured. So if I call them and tell them there was a fraudulent activity, they're very quick to take that charge off and issue me a new card whenever I need to. So I don't tend to worry too much about that. But I do assume that breach. So you, you talking about that concept kind of brought back that, that memory that it's a very common question I get asked all the time. I'm sure you get asked similar things as well. Oh, absolutely. And uh, my whole thing is it's vigilance. Like you were just saying, you have to just stay on top of it, you know, check your credit card accounts, try to spread things around, you know, the credit card you're using online, maybe just use one so you can track it better. Um, you know, make sure you're not, I mean, we don't obviously help you and I are re reusing our passwords, but <laughs> telling our family members not to be reusing passwords and things like that and yeah. use a VPN and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I get the same question too. And I do shop online. <laughs> oh, we can, we can have a whole hour conversation about passwords themselves. <laughs> yeah. oh, Maybe we can save it for another time. Absolutely. Um, so Kelly, let's change topics a little bit. I know that you've raised your kids on a farm and recently moved to more of a city life. So why don't you share with us how you're enjoying that transition so far? It may not be that different given current situations, yeah. but I'd still be curious. Um, how's that experience been? Uh, what are some things you really enjoy and what are some things you miss from your previous life? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. and my husband's from Maine. I'm a rural area in Maine. So uh, we lived um, in the D.C. area for the first year of our marriage and we decided we wanted to move into more rural space to raise our kids you know, ideally on a farm, have a horse, because I, I was interested in riding. Um, so we we ended up moving to a small town outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, and lived there for a little while. And then we found this community that was a community farm, which is a very rare and confusing thing to explain to people because there aren't many out there. <laughs> um, but it's basically a subdivision that is a working farm. And 
literally it's run by, we have an HOA and we have committees that we do things by. It's all about just keeping the tradition of sort of a dying world alive farm. So we have a we have cattle operation. We had, um, we had garden, we had uh, chickens with it, fresh eggs, that type of thing. So we moved there, built a house and raised our two kids there. Um, so they got to grow up on a farm, which was very rare and unusual. Uh, and our daughter got to show horses and I got to ride with her and we got to do some fun things. We actually raised sheep for a while. Um, yeah, I was actually birthing lambs at one point. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we got the full experience. It was, it was amazing. Um, and I, we loved it. We lived there a long time. We, you know, but our kids are both out of college now and we were kind of getting a hankering for getting a little bit closer to the city of Charlottesville, which is not a big city, but it's a nice mid-sized, uh, small city with a lot, a lot to offer. And we really like, that's our sort of our hub anyway, where we were living. So uh, we moved here about a year ago in the city and we love it. Um, I haven't looked back. We actually still have our horses are boarded at the farm because we still own a lot there. So I do go back to the farm a couple of times a week uh, to feed them. We have a friend helping us and my daughter helps feed them. Uh, but we have two retired horses now. <laughs> Uh, but, um, yeah, no, I, I miss the quiet. It's one of the quietest places I've ever been in my life. Like I can go on vacation or to Maine anywhere else and no place is as quiet as the farm was. It was incredibly quiet. You would hear a pin drop. All you hear every animal's sound. You'd know someone's car, whose car it was if it drove by because <laughs> you knew the sound of the neighbor's car. Uh, it was incredible. Um, a really rare uh, place, really hard to explain to people when they've never heard of it, but it really a special place to grow that they could raise the kids. They loved it. But it was time we had this house we didn't need anymore, and we didn't want to. We wanted to simplify our lives and streamline, so we did. <laughs> and Charlotte's was a great town. We love it. We're in walking distance to everything. That's great. Well, Kelly, thank you. I know that this was a little bit of a role reversal for you. Typically, you're the <laughs> one conducting the interviews, oh, yeah. so I hope this wasn't too bad. Uh, but you know, thank you so much for being our guest. It was uh, really a pleasure having you, and I look forward to talking to you even more. Yeah, thank you, Nabil. It was very nice talking to you. And thanks for having me. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agentofinfluence.